Today's scripture reading is Jonah 1, 1 through 3. Please stand, if able, for the reading of God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa to found, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are beginning a series in the book of Jonah this morning. Jonah is, uh, it's, you know, it's not the very beginning of the minor prophets, those books that are just after the big books of the prophets in your Bible, but historically speaking, it, it probably is the oldest of the minor prophets. It was written before God's people in the northern kingdom of Israel went into exile, were sent off into exile. So it's a very early book. And uh, you know, if you read the prophets, whether you read the majors or the minors, the long ones or the short ones, you'll find that all those letters have a lot of, uh, or all those, all those books have a lot of words that were spoken by the prophet. Like in all of them, the prophets actually had things to say, except for Jonah. There's only one line in which Jonah is actually prophesying, in which he's actually saying something, and it's, it's in the Hebrew, it's five words, you know, but, it, but in, in our translation, you know, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall perish, and that's it. So what's Jonah about? It, maybe it's not necessarily about Jonah's message, because we don't get a lot when it comes to Jonah's message, the things that he actually has to say, and, and so what is the story about? And of course, it's it's a beautiful book. It's, it's more beautiful than we realize, actually. You know, if, you, if, if, we, if we knew Hebrew, we could, you know, really see some of the ways in which the author of this book just wove it together in a, in a really beautiful, poetic way uh, that's really unparalleled in all of ancient literature, honestly. So, a beautiful book. But at the end of the day, what's it about? It's a very simple story. Is it, is it meant to be just kind of a morality tale? If it's not about Jonah and Jonah's message, is the end of the day, the message just don't be like Jonah, right? Don't be like Jonah. Do the things that Jonah didn't do. Go gladly when God says go. Go where God says to go and say the words that God would have you say and then be happy when the people do what God is telling them to do. Of course, Jonah does the exact opposite of all of that. So, don't be like Jonah. Is that the message? Is it a morality tale in that sense? Or, you know, of course, there's this fish. Is it about the fish? You know, is it about just God's power and the miracles and the wonders that could take place? You know, is it, if, if you were a child of the 90s or the early 2000s, you remember a particular adaptation of the Jonah story, right? Veggie Tales. Think uh, Jonah was an asparagus in Veggie Tales, is that right? I watched a lot of this with my kids when they were little, and it's all kind of faded away in the background. But, you know, is it just a story? Is it just, a, in essence, a children's story, Jonah? Or is there more to it than that? And, you know, I mean, we wouldn't be preaching through it if there wasn't more to it than that. It wouldn't be in the Bible if there wasn't more to it than that. There's way more to it than that. It is certainly not a morality tale. It's certainly not a fun little piece of literature for kids to get something out of concerning the power of God. It's actually a window and a mirror. It's a window into the mystery of God's mercy 
It's a window into the mystery of God's mercy. As we read Jonah, we get a glimpse of, of the mystery of God's mercy, that God should be merciful even to his enemies in unexpected ways with unanticipated consequences. I mean, we're going to get into some of the historical context here in a minute, but it's, it's just amazing that God should be so merciful to these people. And so through the Jonah story, we get a window onto God's mercy. But we also get a mirror when it comes to our own reluctance because we do see in Jonah so much of ourselves. Jonah was a reluctant witness. He was a prophet. He was supposed to go where God says go and say what God says to say. And Jonah is, well, he's not a happy guy. He's not thrilled about what God's calling him to do. He's not thrilled about what God's calling him to say. He's not thrilled about what he knows the outcome's going to be. He's a reluctant witness. And as we look at Jonah, we get a window, I'm sorry, we get a mirror on our own hearts concerning our reluctance when it comes to bear witness to the mystery of God's mercy to people who you know, even are our enemies. So a window and a mirror, a window on God's mercy, a mirror concerning our own hearts and how much we are reluctant like Jonah to bear witness to God's mercy. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do an overview of Jonah this morning, and we're going to look at those two key ideas, the mystery of God's mercy and the reluctance of God's witness. The mystery of God's mercy and the reluctance of God's witness. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather together this morning, we're so thankful for this book. We're thankful that you preserved it for us down to this very day. You knew that the original readers of this book would need it, and you knew that your church would need it throughout history, and you knew that we would need it today. And so I pray that as we read it, that you would be working by your spirit through it. This is your word. All of your word is powerful and effective for shaping and transforming and challenging and convicting, encouraging and uplifting and propelling your people into ministry, into hard things, serving hard people in often hard places. So help us this morning, we pray, oh God, to get it, to begin to get a glimpse of what you're doing through this book, to, to appreciate, not just appreciate, but marvel as we look through the window onto the mystery of your mercy and to be humbled, but often, I mean, also repentant when it comes to the mirror that this reflects of our own heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, the mystery of God's mercy. And just to kind of clear the deck and get the question out of the way, does Mark think this is actually history? Or is it a parable? Is it allegory? And yes, I believe this is history for a number of reasons. First of all, whoever wrote the book, and we don't know whether or not Jonah wrote it, but whoever wrote the book treated it as history. The very beginning that we, that we heard read, now the word of the Lord came to, in this sense, Jonah, that is formulaic, you know, that is so often found at the beginning of an historical narrative concerning something that God's spokesperson is about to say. Now the word of the Lord came to, that's that's common fare for launching into something that actually happened, a narrative concerning something that's true. 
So the author of this book, treated as history, Jonah is a real person. You know, we've got Jonah, the son of Amittai. We read about Jonah in 2 Kings and 2 Kings 14, 25. Same guy. Jonah, we learn there, was a resident of Gath Hefer. He prophesied under Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel in the mid to early 8th century BC. Jonah prophesied that God would enlarge the uh, boundaries, that God would enlarge the territory of the northern kingdom of Israel. And that happened. At that time, Assyria, which Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, at that time, Assyria, which had been strong, was kind of on the decline. There was famine in Assyria. There was uh, kind of these rebellions and revolts within Assyria. And so Assyria was kind of diminished in their strength and, 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 and Israel began to expand. So that, that happened. So there's a, an author who treated it as real history. There's a real person who's the central figure in the story. Most importantly, though, Jesus treated it as history. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus says to the Pharisees, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Now, T.T. Perone, over 100 years ago, which is significant because up until about 100 years ago, everybody treated this as history. And then 100 years ago, we suddenly knew better from that point on, right? T.T. Perone, over 100 years ago, wrote this. The future judge, that's Jesus, is speaking words of solemn warning to those who shall hereafter stand convicted at his bar. Okay, so he's talking to the Pharisees. He's the judge. He is saying to them, you are going to stand convicted before, my bar, before the bar, right? The future judge is speaking words of solemn warning to those who shall hereafter stand convicted at his bar. Are we to suppose him to say that imaginary persons who at the imaginary preaching of an imaginary prophet repented in imagination shall rise up in that day and condemn the actual impenitence of his actual hearers, right? Jesus treats it as history. The author treats it as history. There's a real historical figure who's in real places talking about real things that actually happen. So why don't we treat it as history? And of course, you know, it's the wind, it's the fish, it's the plant, it's the worm. I mean, how could these things possibly happen? And you know, there have been really silly attempts to, to prove that these things could have happened. You know, apparently a study was done to show that a human being could live inside a sperm whale for three days. I don't know what they were paying to participate in that study. It was not enough, whatever it was, right? Or, you know, we could figure it was this kind of a plant, and that kind of a plant can grow up really quick, so that could have happened, and, and here's this worm, and because the plant was so big, the roots are, come on. Jonah says, the Lord appointed. The Lord appointed the fish. The Lord appointed the plant. The Lord appointed the worm. It's a miracle, right? You, you can't be a Christian without being a supernaturalist. We believe that God does things that can't be explained in a natural way, chief of which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
okay? So if you're not a Christian and you're here, I understand. I mean, a lot of Christians are troubled by this. How could this have happened? Let me encourage you to start with that core question, the thing upon which Christianity hangs and falls, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Start there. You're going to, I mean, get to this. Get to the flood. Get to the sun standing still in Joshua. Get to the things that happened with Elijah and Elisha. Get to all those things. But start with that central thing upon which Christianity either rises or falls, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Explore the Gospels. Understand what the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have to say about the resurrection, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as history. If you'd like to explore that some, I would love to talk with you about that. There are books that we can read together, things that we can talk about that I think demonstrate the historical reliability of the Gospels in attesting to an historical event that can only be explained if there's a God who exists, if there's more to what's real than what can be seen, okay? Don't miss the point of Jonah. The story is not about the fish. It's about so much more. All right, so how do we know what it's about? Now, you know that I never, ever, 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 ever use PowerPoint. (laughs) And studies have been proven. I feel so justified now because in the last, you know, 10 years, these studies have come out showing that PowerPoint is absolutely not effective when it comes to presentations. So I feel justified in never using PowerPoint in my 12 years of ministry at Grace, and yet at the same time, I'm going to use PowerPoint for just this part of it, because it is so much easier to appreciate the structure of Jonah and how the structure proves the point of Jonah if I use PowerPoint. So I know, because the studies, you know, they're never wrong. If everything I'm going to say as I'm showing you this, you're not going to hear, but that's okay, because everything I'm going to say is going to be recorded, if you want to go back and listen to it, if you're a glutton for punishment. All right, parallel structure of Jonah, or in other words, how we know it's not about the fish. Jonah is an, a beautiful book. It is, it is structured in a way that we can't quite grasp with, unless we really dig into it deeply. And I'm not going to dig into it as deep as we could, but each of these four chapters is kind of structured in a, in, a, in a chiastic way. It kind of builds from the top to the bottom of the end of each chapter to prove a central point at the, in the middle of each chapter. And the book of a whole does, as a whole does that to prove a central point that's at the center of the book. We're going to look at it just in terms of uh, two scenes that really, just reading the book on a, at a superficial level, these scenes jump out at you, right? There's, there's Jonah, the pagans, he's dealing with these Ninevites uh, or the pagans at sea. So Jonah, the pagans, and the sea in chapters 1 and 2, and then Jonah, the pagans, and the city in chapters 3 through 4. By the way, that kind of sliding in like that, I did that. <laughs> I did. I did not have to ask for help with that. I don't want to tell you how long I spent on it yesterday, but I did it. All right, so, so two scenes, three realms that you see throughout this, right? Jonah and God's word, Jonah and God's world. So Jonah out on the sea dealing with the Ninevites or dealing with the, the sailors, and then Jonah and God's grace. So Jonah and God's word, let's look at that first realm. Scene one, Jonah, the pagans, and the sea. Again, there's parallelism here. God's word comes to Jonah in the first verse. We had that read. The message to be conveyed in the second verse of chapter uh, one, right? Go to that great city, call out against it for their evil has come up before me. 
And then Jonah's response in verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And you know the rest of the story. Scene 2, parallel. Scene 2, God's word comes to Jonah. So this is now Jonah, the pagans, and the city beginning in chapter 3. God's word comes to Jonah. The message to be conveyed in chapter 3, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. The message that I tell you. And then Jonah's response. Hey, Jonah goes. Jonah and God's world. Back to scene one. Jonah, the pagans, and the sea. The word of warning in chapter one, verse four. The word, the response of the pagans in chapter one, verses five and six. So here's the sailors out at sea. You get the response both of the sailors and the captain of the ship. And then in chapter one, verse seven, through the end of chapter one, how the pagan response was actually better than Jonah's. And then in scene two, Jonah, the pagans, and the city. The word of warning, chapter 3, verse 4. The response of the pagans in chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. And how the pagan response in the city was better than Jonah's as well. And then Jonah and God's grace. Scene one, Jonah, the pagans, and the sea. Jonah calls out to God in desperation, right? That beautiful chapter, chapter 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, chapter 2, verse 1. God provides a fish. It's at the end of chapter 1, verse 17. Jonah praises God gladly. That beautiful section. I can't wait to look at it in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, where, you know, you just get a… It's all Psalms. We'll get to it later. I don't want to get ahead of myself. And then scene 2, Jonah, the pagans in the city. Jonah calls out to God in consternation, right? Jonah's now angry with God. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. God provides a plant and a worm. And then Jonah praises God begrudgingly. He does say, and he says something true, something that's at the center of who God is. I knew, O God, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's, that's, that's That's repeating back to God what God has said concerning himself. It's glorifying God, but begrudgingly. And then you get to the end of each scene and you get to the heart of the meaning of the book. Scene one ends with Jonah's good confession. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Scene two ends with God's good question. Shall I not save them? Shall I not save them? So a mystery, right? We get a window in Jonah into the mystery of God's mercy. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Yes, that's Jonah's good confession. I I affirm that because I'm experiencing it, it, right? But I affirm that. And then scene two, God confronting Jonah, shall I not save them? So let's turn secondly then and look at the reluctance of God's witness. Why was Jonah so reluctant? Well, let's come back and talk for a minute about the Assyrians. Jonah is asking really two questions. How could you do that for them? And he's also asking, how could you do this to me? Let's talk first about that first one. How could you do that for them? The Assyrian Empire. Nineveh, again, is the capital of Assyria. The Assyrian Empire had been in a place of strength. A hundred years or so before this happened, before Jonah happened, uh, mid-800s B.C., this happens you know, late or mid to early 700s B.C. 
But there was a time when Assyria was much stronger than it was at this time. They were exacting heavy tribute on the, uh, the nation, the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel. But now they're in a weakened place, as I mentioned. Assyria is weak. They've got all kinds of things going on internally. Um, there's a famine in the land. Israel's on the rise. Israel's a little bit stronger. Their territory's widening. But Jonah knew who these people were. The Assyrians had a reputation for being extremely brutal. So the Assyrians, when they uh, cut, you know, when they, when they captured an enemy, they would cut off one arm and they would cut off both legs of the captured enemy, but they would leave, you know, one arm and one hand so that they could shake that person's hand while they laid there dying. And there were other things that they did. I mean, they, they, they would force... Uh, the family of their enemies to uh, hold the, a, a long pole with the decapitated head of their loved one on it and walk around with it. They were brutal. Now, they're in a weakened place right now when, when this takes place, but they would rise again to prominence. It would be the Assyrian Empire that would ultimately overthrow the northern kingdom of Israel within 50 years after this happened. So most likely within Jonah's lifetime, certainly within the lifetime of those who are reading it. Now there's, there's some question as to whether or not Jonah was written before the northern kingdom went off into exile or after they got back from exile. I think, you know, the argument, the argument's stronger that it was written before they went into exile. And so you've got now these people who are reading Jonah and they're reading about God saving these Ninevites. And they could put themselves in Jonah's mind and thinking, God, you know all things. You know the, the beginning from the end, or the end from the beginning. Why on earth would you provide an opportunity to these people to repent when you know what kind of people they are and you know what they're going to do like 50 years from now? And so here these people are, they're reading this book and they're like, oh man, this is happening. Like they're at the door. God did that for them? So that's Jonah's struggle. God, you're going to, how could you do that for them? But then Jonah's also kind of struggling. We see this, don't we? How could you do this to me? How could you do this to me, God? I had a great ministry in Gath Heifer. Things were going so well for me there. I was pronouncing a message that people liked to hear. Everyone was encouraged by my message. Things were going well. I was comfortable. And you want me to go where? And say what? You're asking too much of me, God. I like my life the way it is. I don't want to go to Nineveh. And I won't go to Nineveh. In 2 Kings, Jonah is referred to as both a prophet and the servant of the Lord. I think it's the only place where a prophet is also referred to as the servant of the Lord. But in Jonah, who is Jonah serving? It's not the Lord. He's serving himself. So what about us? If, if Jonah is not only a window onto God's mercy, but a mirror reflecting our own hearts as we look at Jonah, how are we like Jonah? And we wrestle with those same two questions. God, how could you, how could you do that for them? Now maybe you're in a place where you're not thinking of someone who has been 
an, an enemy, you know, someone who's opposed you, someone who's been hurt you in, in terrible ways in the past, or you know is likely to hurt you again. Maybe you're not in that place right now, but if you are, you can imagine how hard it may be for you to see God show them mercy. They're in the wrong. What they've done was wrong. They've hurt you in ways that are grievous. Or they've done horrible things to people on a, on a broad scale. How could God be merciful to them? God, how could you do that for them? But I also think it is true, and part of the Part of the reason why I think we need to look at Jonah is because this is really it tails off well or builds well on what we looked at in First and Second Peter, which is just the fact that the church in America is entering a season, most likely, I'm, listen, I'm no prophet, no prophet, but I don't think it takes a whole lot of prophetic foresight to see that the, the, the culture's shifting in the United States. That's going to be increasingly hard to live a, a public Christian life that really adheres to what the Scriptures say without facing opposition, without having people really rise up and, and say and, and potentially do very hurtful things to Christians. And that's just here. I mean, we've got it good. You know, you know how it doesn't take long to to read about what's happening throughout the world right now to Christians and know that it must be hard to be in a place like Jonah and the early readers from the northern kingdom of Israel and watch those who are God's enemies be shown God's mercy. How could you do that for them? But then we also wrestle with that question, how could you do this to me? Because God is always coming along and interrupting our plans for ourselves, God is always coming along and shaking things up. We are either always in Nineveh or on our way to Nineveh. And the reason why is because to be a Christian is to take up your cross and follow Jesus. So we are either always in or on our way to a hard place or to do hard things or to be in relationship with hard people. That's just the normal Christian life. And so like Jonah, we're wrestling with things like, how could you do that for them? Or, or how could you do this to me? So here's what I want to challenge you to do. As we look over the next several weeks at Jonah, I want to challenge you to ask yourself two questions that I think come right out of the book. The first is this. Where is God calling you to go or simply to go on. Let me explain what I mean. Where is God calling you to go or simply to go on? Right? God was calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah rose up to go away from the presence of the Lord, to flee the presence of the Lord. Jonah had Psalm 139. Right? Jonah knew, where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go from your spirit? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of the sea, you are there. Jonah had that. That was written before Jonah. But Jonah was ready to flee from the presence of the Lord. He didn't want to go where God would have him go. So where is God calling you to go? I think this is what makes our study of Jonah particularly, um, I guess the word I thought of yesterday was unsettling. <laughs> 
Because God may use this to call you to go somewhere where he wants you to go, but you don't necessarily want to go. Will we be open to that? Will you be? You may be at a stage in your life right now. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the stage of your life, actually. You just be in a, be, may be in a place where God is calling you to go, and you're going to feel that tug as we study this book. And the question will be, will you, like Jonah, seek to go where God doesn't want you to go, or will you go where he's calling you to go? One commentator on Jonah said this, I think it's beautiful. There will always be a ship in the harbor ready to take you where God doesn't want you to go. There will always be ample opportunity to go where God doesn't want you to go. The question is, will you go where God does want you to go, where he is calling you to go? Because that's where God is. Or is God calling you to just go on with where you are? Even though it's a hard place, even though you're doing hard things, even though you're in relationships with hard people, will you go on there and not flee that hard thing that you are facing right now? Will you go on to bear witness to that neighbor or that coworker or that friend? Will you go on in this workplace that you're in right now that is hostile to Christianity? Will you go on in the lecture halls where your faith is being openly mocked? Will you, will you go on in your home trying to raise kids, you know, the daily grind of parenting, trying to raise kids to know Jesus and you're seeing little fruit? Will you go on in a marriage where your spouse now rejects Christianity? Will you go on or will you flee? So where is God calling you to go or simply to go on? That's the first question I want you to be asking yourself as we study Jonah. And the second is this. Will you pity the people or the plant? Will you pity the people or the plant? At the end of Jonah, you've got Jonah pitying the plant and hoping that the people will perish. And you've got God pitying the people. Jonah is entirely committed to his own comfort. And when God does something to disrupt his comfort, he pities the loss of his comfort. God is ready to move heaven and earth, and he's ready to get Jonah to that place, even though Jonah doesn't want to go, out of great concern for the people. And so the question when I ask, will you pity the people or the plant, is Will you prize your own comfort over God's call to be his witness in the world? The beginning of Acts makes clear we are all called to be God's witnesses. Wherever the, 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 the sphere of his mission that he has laid out for us exists, it may be just within your home, it may be just within your marriage, it may be just within your workplace, or God may be calling you to go to lands yet unknown to you. Or to people yet unknown who will oppose you. But will you be faithful? We pity the people. Will you be his witness gladly? Or will you prize your own comfort over his call? That's really the question that you get when you get to the end of Jonah. It's open-ended for a reason. It ends with God pitying the cattle. <laughs> it's fast. I can't wait to get there. 
That'll be fun. What will Jonah do? That's the question. We don't know because it forces us to ask the question, what will we do? What will we do? How will we respond to God's mercy? The question at the end of the day is not, oh God, how could you show mercy to people like them? The question that we need to ask, the answer that we need to really celebrate is the fact that God should show mercy to people such as us. And until we get that, not just from Jonah, but by the power of God's Spirit, just from the testimony of Scripture itself, we will have missed the grace of God that is offered to us in the one who is greater than Jonah. Jesus refers to himself as the one who is greater than Jonah. One who is greater than Jonah is here. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, Jesus says, so too will I be in the heart of the earth. Why? Jonah went down in order to save a few sailors. Jesus went down and then rose in order to save all who would look to him in faith. That offer is for you. If your thought right now is, well, of course it's for me. I'm pretty decent. It won't be long and you'll be pitying the plant. If, however, you do in fact marvel that God should show mercy to one such as you, then may it be that by God's grace, as we study Jonah together, we do celebrate the fact that God's mercy is more. Though our sin is great, God's mercy is more. And let that compel us as glad witnesses into the mission fields to which he has called us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this book, and we pray that as we look at it over the next several weeks, you will be working in our hearts, not just when we're gathered here on Sunday morning, but Lord, throughout the week, as we, as we read this book, and I, pr I pray that, that we will all read it continually throughout the week. As we read it, as we think about it and, and pray over it as we have it proclaimed to us on Sunday morning, where we know that your word is powerful and effective, we know it sinks to the core, convicts us of our sin, and calls us to repentance. And so we pray that you would be doing that work in us through Jonah. Oh Lord, let the question not be open for us anymore. By the time we come to the end of Jonah, may it be, O oh God, that we are people who are gladly ready to go be your witnesses where you would have us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.